Welcome back, Derangers. You are here at Deranged De Jure, the podcast bringing you two deranged lawyers talking about their most deranged obsessions, which is everything we are obsessed with anything deranged. I am Pisha. I am correctly introducing myself in a non-embarrassing way, I'd like to point out, and I'm here with my co-host. Raven, and I am super impressed right now. Great job. Excellent. I'm learning. Yeah, well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank Love you. it. Yeah, so um, we are here today to, first of all, wait, it's almost, uh, what, Mardi Gras, Galentine? It is Mardi Day. Gras. Yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of, a lot of uh, holidays. Yeah. A lot of holidays, yeah. And mm -hmm. um, we just wanted to say in honor of Valentine's Day, uh, fuck all men, particularly <laughs> Captain James Cook, but not the men who listen to our podcast. <laughs> we love you. You guys are the best. Yeah, there's there's quite a few men that I would like to say fuck you to right now, but um, but not the ones that listen to this podcast. So they really be <laughs> wiling right now. They be wiling Ooh, around Lord. Valentine's Day. God. Tell me, God damn it! Yeah, just uh, just behave. Just yeah, behave please. out there, will you? Will yeah, you please behave? Try, try. So <laughs> so yeah, we're um we're here today to get back into our series on prison riots and reforms. Last week, we started talking about the New Mexico State Penitentiary Riot of 1980. Raven, why don't you tell us where we left off? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we started talking about the conditions that led up to the riot. Um, clearly, they were terrible, uh, which prison conditions typically are. But during this time, there was quite a big upswing in the amount of people who were being incarcerated due to politicians who were mostly male. Sorry. Um, right? Patriarchy. I know. It's I'm going to try working. not to be. It really isn't. And we should really change it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm going to try not to be such a man hater today, um, even though I really want to be. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. We're try so hard. We're really sorry in advance. <laughs> yes. But literally, they be wildin'. They be they wildin' do. right now. They do be wildin'. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, uh, we love some of them. Yes. Of Maybe. course, the ones that listen. Yes. Only those ones. Um <laughs> So yeah, but, so so you were saying that prison conditions sucked and all these male politicians who also suck had right. like passed all this legislation that led to an influx of incarcerated individuals. Right. Yeah. I mean they're really hurting themselves. And that, I mean, I guess that's that's something to pay attention to is that uh well, I mean, you know, they're hurting other races, but they're they're hurting other men uh when they create these policies because the majority of the populations, and especially when we're talking about this particular uh, prison riot, is only men. Uh, there were not women inmates at this particular prison at this time, uh, which is typical for the time period. Uh, well, and actually, and, it's still I mean, still the were, truth. Were women allowed to be correctional officers back then? You know what? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe. I mean, 80 was a little progressive, but I can't imagine yeah. in the 70s the stuff leading up to the riot in any way was contributed to by female corrections officers. Sure. I feel like I heard about a couple of them, but I think that their roles are a little bit different as they are currently today as well. They have to kind of be protected 
um, just which sucks, but there's a lot of reasons for that. And we do not have time to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so what happened in New Mexico in 1980 uh, was that there had been this just God awful conditions that were happening in the New Mexico state penitentiary and the prisoners were talking about it. And there was this, talk throughout and people knew about this and i think that you know i'm not sure how much we talked about it last time um the corrections officers knew about it and i think the politicians knew about it too and they didn't do anything to correct it there were lawsuits that were going on even prior to this happening that led to some type of supposed change or at least court-ordered change that we're going to get into next time but I mean, it was well documented and known that these conditions were terrible. So what led us to where we are going to pick up today is that the inmates had been drinking hooch in their cell that they had created. And, you know, like I said, there was so much overcrowding and the officers just kind of like had to make do with where they were in this. And they got taken over, they were stripped, they were uh, taken hostage, and uh, they were ultimately, the inmates ultimately took over from there. And so that's where we had left off last time. So where we're going to pick up is that there were, so the four COs who were taken hostage, I think, what what time was this? This is about midnight, right? I think, so I've seen a few different things. Um, I, I saw that the night crew was actually an hour late that night. And so okay. the head count that usually took place around mid t- midnight was taking place around one or one forty. So I, I think my understanding was that when um, the guards were doing the head count in dorm E2, it was about one forty in the morning. Yeah, I think you're about right with that. It may have been a little bit earlier because I know that there was some communication that happened at about one fifty seven, uh, but it is right in line with with where we're talking about. So they took these uh, COs hostage while they were doing a count to determine how many inmates were in the building where they were in E2. And they added these COs uh, to their hostage collection. (laughs) (laughs) Just going to collect me some correctional officers. Sure. You know, got to catch them all. Oh God, that's so sad to laugh. I'm at sorry. It's really no. funny. I really sorry. like that. I hope that becomes a catchphrase. I hope so too. Oh, it Pokemon is. Pokemon or otherwise. Pokemon. <laughs> oh God, sorry. Yeah, but in any case, uh, so they caught all of the COs at the time, and uh, the inmates started, you know, whiling a little bit more. And so I think where we had left off, like at, during the last part, was where the inmates were at the admin, the control center and they got to where there was a uh, bulletproof glass that, w- that the COs actually knew. And I think that the administrators and other people in power knew was not actually bulletproof. Can and I just that was take a problem. A Can I take a moment to interject? 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. So I, I just wanted to very quickly point out that this riot could have easily been stopped when the inmates first exited dorm E2 because there are grills that separate the South Wing from the administrative like center nucleus area. And then there's also a grill at the North Wing that separates all the cell blocks from the administrative building. Those grills are required to be locked and closed at all times. And yes. the reason why these inmates were able to uh, overpower the uh, COs attempting to close and lock the grill was because they were unlocked and open and they were rushing to close it. They should have been closed. So um, it was easy chance to stop this. But because of those really poorly run conditions, it... It just, it went on and they were able to reach the admin building and the control center, like you said, in the hub of the building. So, sorry, right. I just, I wanted to point that out because it blew my mind that there were so many instances where this could have been stopped before it happened and while it was happening. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's important and in line with what I was saying about the glass, like that the COs knew administration knew that this was not actually secure and the problem was underfunding entirely 1000 percent. and i don't know that we can say enough about how underfunded these prisons were and why that led to the conditions that they were in i mean obviously we talked about last time the green turkey and how awful the food and medical care and everything i mean the toilets overflowing all of that stuff and so, you know, security was no different. So not only was, like, as you said, the doors were unlocked, but there were actually exit doors on each of the cell blocks that they easily could have accessed during this prison riot to get these people out. And they didn't do that. They, the, the keys were in a different area. And so I guess, I don't know, they were either too lazy or like, or just didn't, couldn't deal with the level of security that they should have been able to deal with in a, you know, super max type of prison. So with the fire extinguisher and they were able to gain access to cell block five. Uh, so cell block five was being constructed at the time and the construction workers were also negligent in that they had left several items that the inmates were then able to use as weapons and the worst possible one that they were using were blow torches. So how are they, how are they able to access cell block five? So they were, they were able to get keys from the corrections officer who was behind the, um, the, the glass. Oh, that's so, right. In the control center, they kept the, all the spare keys to the rest of the prison. Exactly. How exactly. unfortunate. Right. And, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think every this was a whole series of unfortunate events. And I think this poor officer just was not equipped. It was one guy. And I'm, you know, I'm refraining from using certain names. I think we'll talk about some of the names of the ones who deserve it. Um, but, you know, I, I think that a lot of these guys were, you know, untrained, uneducated. And this guy, he just had to kind of flee at some point and there were a bunch of keys that were left behind that he definitely should have taken with him and he did not. 
So, well, honestly, if they had caught him, they were going to take the keys from him. So, I mean, he was damned if he did, damned if he didn't. So I'm willing to forgive him for that. Um, yeah. But but there was a moment when I was reading the story where I was like, homie, you can't just flee and leave the keys to the entire prison behind. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, in an emergency situation, I can't say that I would have done any better. I probably would have done much worse. No kidding. Honest. And I so. think this particular security guard, I'm not sure if I'm correct, but he might have only been like 18 years old. I think you're right about that, actually. So thank you for, for so adding sad. that. Very yeah. sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I'm sorry. Go on. No. And I mean, I think the only other thing I have to say about that is like once they gained access to cell block five, it was over. They gained access to the entire prison within 22 minutes of the pr prison riot starting. So it wow. just, uh, yeah, it, it got bad really quickly. And like I said, I mean, this is a matter of policy. And I lay a lot of the blame on the lack of security in this prison on the politicians themselves. Uh, I think that the corrections officers were doing what they had to do. You know, I, I don't, I, I think a lot of them were terrible. I'm not going to say that they weren't to blame, but I think a lot of them, you know, were given the best tools that they were able and, um, and the conditions were just so bad as a result of the policies that were put in place by these politicians that they, um, they didn't have any choice really yeah, um, no resources no funding what what are you to do i mean right. not not abuse and your authority over the inmates like many right. of these corrections officers did but but i think a lot of the guard i want to say the research that i did into the guards that were there the night of the riot was mm -hmm. that most of them were not the ones who contributed to the environment the hostile environment within the prison like like maybe they did to a little bit to some degree but they weren't like the big target ceos who had like their special little names because they were known for beating the crap out of these inmates and and putting them in very dangerous situations with the other prisoners right yeah, no, that's exactly right. So, I mean, we talk, we've talked a lot about um, the conditions that led up to this and, and the inmates uh, and, and, uh, and how they got in. But, uh, Pisha, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the demographics and what we're talking about, about what was going on, you know, beyond just the policies of the prison? Right. Yeah. So when you watch any prison show, you know that there's the little gangs on the inside that have their own hierarchy of power and they work together in a, you know, a line for certain goals. Um, in this case, New Mexico State Penitentiary in the 60s was primarily um, inmates who were of Latino descent. Um, so the, Latinos made up 75% of the prison population in the 60s. And at the time, they had sort of an arrangement with the white inmates who were mostly unaffiliated with gangs at that time. So it remained relatively peaceful, I guess you could say. I mean, as peaceful as prison life can be until the 1970s when there was a huge influx of white inmates affiliated with motorcycle gangs. Vroom, vroom. From from oh my god! Have you ever read the Andreas Thompson's book on Hell's Angels? I did not. The closest I've ever gotten to motorcycle gangs was watching Sons of Anarchy. 
No, I mean, and that's actually exactly on point with that. But uh, Hunter S. Thompson got in and infiltrated the Hell's Angels in California during this time period. So it'd be really interesting to see. And I know we didn't do this research, but it would be really interesting to see like how that developed and how they came down from California to New Mexico, because there were a couple of other gangs that were, I mean, and I think this may not be the same time period that were coming into the New Mexico prisons as well. So anyway, uh, I just, I, I, no, I don't know. You're this. actually right. No, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not going to stop you because I can actually tell you what brought these motorcycle gangs to New Mexico and what led to the big influx of their incarceration. What happened was around the seventies. I don't know. You ever hear about a guy called Pablo Escobar? Like, hmm, I mean, maybe. yeah. So there was a lot of drug trafficking going on by these motorcycle gangs from the Gulf of Mexico to California. So it led to increased arrests in the state of New Mexico. So it's not so much that they were like um, settling down here. Although I think as a result of their prison population growing that a chapter probably did move into the state at some point, but um, initially it was drug trafficking from the Gulf to California and their increased incarceration meant a rise of white supremacist groups within the prison, because I guess motorcycle gangs are also horrible racists, (laughs) which I didn't know those things went hand in hand, but I guess they do. So whatever. But anyways, they're all white supremacists. And, um, you know, the most notable white supremacist group is the Aryan Brotherhood. They are more extreme than the unaffiliated white inmates that were already in the New Mexico state pen who tended to stick to themselves. So by the 1980 riot, the Latino population had shrunk to less than 50%. And there was an active Aryan Brotherhood chapter. Chapter? Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, Operating within the prison. A lot of the unaffiliated white inmates were brought in under the promise of protection, or they joined because they thought it was necessary to their survival in prison. A lot of inmates who were uh, white inmates who were interviewed following their incarceration they tend to say that they joined the Aryan Brotherhood not because they actually espoused the ideas, but because they they felt like if they confronted them or whatever, they, they'd die. They'd die in prison, and they just wanted to serve their time for their petty crimes and get out. Well, so, and actually, just to kind of like segue into that a little bit, I mean, that is kind of the way that these that prisons are set up, even to this day. Right. Um, a lot of there's a lot of prison gangs that are racially affiliated. And a lot of people who wouldn't normally be a part of any gang whatsoever, but because of the conditions that they're in, that they need some level of protection and these gangs provide that. And so that's, that's how people end up in these racially charged or uh, segregated gangs that they might not otherwise be in. Exactly. That's exactly what happens. And so when everyone gets separated into their various little groups, um, it was found at the New Mexico State Penitentiary that the correctional officers who were primarily Latino favored the Latino inmates and then would shame and harass the white supremacists. And this contributed very much to the rising violence and hostility of the inmates towards each other. So um, in, a, in a very strange way, it's actually 
you would think it would be a good way of controlling people by dividing them and making them enemies against each other so that they won't join together to overpower you. But it's almost like this went so far <laughs> that they all still joined together despite the distrust harbored between them, uh, between the groups by the correctional officers. So it's very interesting yeah. how that worked out. That is really interesting. I, there was one thing that I was trying to remember, and this, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I think that I remember like the, the black Muslim population was separated from like the Aryan Brotherhood who were the primary initiators in this prison riot. And so they uh, would, they, they had their own separate area that they were doing different things and were actually kind of protecting some of the COs and other inmates that the otherwise like wily Aryan Brotherhood and other inmates who were the initiators were trying to attack. Is that right? That's exactly correct. So um, this kind of leads nicely into what resulted as, um, because of the racism and the hostility of the inmates towards each other, both racially and um, towards the people labeled snitches. So there was this group of 14 inmates, primarily from the Aryan Brotherhood and the Mexican Mafia. There were some unaffiliated black inmates as well. They were known as the Death Squad during this 1980 riot. How is this not a movie? <laughs> I know, right? Like, it's got the name ready to go. And right? you know what? I think it is a movie. I was looking into it, and there's so many... Um, I don't think there's, there's any directly attached to the New Mexico State Penitentiary, but I do think there's many prison riot movies that take circumstances from the real life events um and incorporated into their movies so i don't think there's anything directly on it but i don't know i'll look into that um yeah because i'd love to watch a movie on this this was wild so absolutely so the death squad their goal during the riot was to break into cell block four and exact revenge on snitches cell block four housed inmates who were police informants mentally ill convicted of sexual crimes or were otherwise vulnerable in general population. So there was right. a total of about 96 inmates in cell block four. <laughs> so this would be considered like, uh, like protected custody, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's exactly what it is. So yeah, you're right. And, um, you know, the death squad on their way to cell block four took a little detour at the psych ward where they broke into the psych ward to loot drugs. Few inmates even overdosed, I think, and died as a result of yeah. overdose. Yeah. Um, and then they also burned inmate records that they felt were preventing them from seeking parole. So Right, which actually hurt them in the long run, it right? It did which hurt we'll get, them in the long run. Yes. Yeah, we'll get Remember into that, this, I think. everyone. Yes, yes. Um, but in any case, yeah. So they, so they went into the psych ward. They took these drugs. Um, and they were probably distributing them, I, I bet, to a lot of the other inmates who were part of this riot as well, right? Exactly. And okay. after doing this, they arrived at cell block four. They discovered they didn't have the keys. When they found the keys, the, I could only imagine what was the, this was like for the peop the inmates hearing all of this on the inside. But mm. they could hear these guys struggling at the doors trying to get in, knowing what fate was going to befall them 
and um, they could hear when they found the keys, they went to open the door and the door jammed and it wouldn't open. And they were like, oh my God, what amazing luck. But unfortunately it really only bought them a few hours because uh, the death squad then used a blowtorch left behind by the crews renovating cell block five. They used the blowtorch to melt the door off the hinges, and they were able to get into cell block four at approximately 10 a.m. It took mm -hmm. hours. Uh, the inmates had began barricading themselves in their cells. How terrifying. Mm. Like with their beds, oh with God. anything they had, they were trying to barricade themselves in so these people couldn't get to them. They were yelling out the windows to state police. They were like, hey, hey they're going to kill us. One of the inmates got a walkie-talkie and called the police and was like, they're straight up going to kill everybody in cell block four. And that officer was overheard saying, well, it's their asses. And despite there being a back door to cell block four, there was no rescue attempt ever made to save the people in cell block four. Right. So. And to reiterate, and I'm, I'm sorry to cut in here, but like, yeah. but these are people who are the informants for the government, right? Like for the state. So these are people who the state have an interest in trying to protect. I mean, not that they shouldn't be protecting other people, but they are risking their literal asses and their lives for the fucking government. And, and I'm sorry to like, to, to say that, but it's, it's, you know, it's a hard subject for me as a criminal defense lawyer to have a state government who is going to do nothing to protect the people who are, are helping them convict other people in that prison. Right. Um, putting and, their and, lives, putting their lives on the line to do this for the government. Exactly. Exactly. It, it just, it, it rubs me all of the wrong ways, but oh, in any oh, case, yeah. No, I don't blame you. It rubs me the wrong way, too, uh, because especially once you start talking about what the death squad did to some of these people. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, once inside, the death squad had a list of targets. Re they were responsible for the death of 13 inmates, 12 of which were housed in cell block four. Right. They had agreed prior to entering cell block four, they had agreed with the black Muslim uh, group within the prison that they could come in first once they got into cell block four and remove all of the black inmates before the carnage. So this was agreed to, and all of the black inmates were removed from cell block four with the exception of a gentleman called Paulina Paul. And oh. I'd, I'd like to talk about him because his case hurts me the most yeah. He, he was a black schizophrenic inmate who was left behind by the black Muslim group for his own safety. He was so mentally ill that they were hoping that in the confinement of his cell, he would be safe from the rioters. Right. So he was left behind, but he was later beaten to death and decapitated with a shovel by a white inmate who was unaffiliated with the Aryan Brotherhood. However, he owed a lot of debts to them. So when they got into cell block four, they got into his cell and they said, hey, 
we will absolve you of your debts if you go into the cell next door and kill the hard R N word in the cell next to you. And that's exactly what he did. So he was absolved of his prison debts to the Aryan Brotherhood for killing Paulina Paul, a schizophrenic inmate. Uh, Yeah, a black schizophrenic inmate. Uh, That's just, that's, that is so rough. Um, And I think those marks are actually still in the floor. It's so gross. I've seen them. Mm -hmm. They, they've filled in the, the like chipped away parts of the floor where the ax or not the ax, the shovel was the shovel being used to decapitate him and dismember him and stuff. And it, they're still there, but even though they, they were filled in with like a lighter colored concrete. And I was like, good job guys. Right. No one can tell what happened. <laughs> right. They did not do a very good job of that. Um, and I don't know that we're going to go into um, what happened to the actual facility afterwards of this one. Uh, but we'll talk about it next time for sure. Uh, but those marks, like I said, are, are still there um, to this day. And that's just, it's absolutely horrifying. Um, and some of the other, you know, you can almost just like hear the absolute chaos that was going on when you hear some of these stories that were going on at the time. So, I mean, you're talking about so back floor. One of the other, and uh, I, I don't think I'm going to mention the name on this one, but, you know, one of the stories that was told was that there was one inmate who was in Selbach 4 who was on the list that uh, this that the death squad had gotten from the administrative offices about who was snitching on who, because that was a big deal. It, it's always a big deal. Um, it happens to this day. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> In, in prison all the time. Well, um, no, just on the streets out here. That's what I learned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but there's always the concern that other inmates are going to snitch against each other. So what happened in this particular case, and this was like what was so horrifying to me when I was reading about this and watching it, was that there was one inmate who was kind of taunting the death squad because the thing is when they were using that blowtorch, to try and get into cell block four. It took a long time. Like it was already taking them a long time. So this inmate was seeing the other inmates kind of like hide behind things and, and barricade themselves. But he was, uh, he was kind of taunting them and he didn't think that they were going to be able to get to him. And so once he realized that they, you know, they had this blowtorch and they were going to be able to get in he did the same thing and was and barricaded himself into his cell and they still, you know, got into his cell. They took him out. They took the, the blowtorch um, to his face and they, uh, they blowtorched him until his head exploded. Oh so. my God. Yep. And, so. and I heard that he was held up to the window so that yes. cops and the media and the loved ones of the prisoners, they could all see as this guy's head slowly took so much heat and pressure that it, it literally exploded. That's exactly right. That's exactly what happened. Right. Um, and they did that very purposefully. So, I mean, that may be the worst death that we uh, encounter in this whole, you know, 33 people died in total. None of them were COs, which is incredible, but 33 inmates lost their lives as a result of this 
prison riot. And that may be the worst one that, that I came across, although there's a few others and there's some rumors too, that I'm going to go over as well. So, um, so that guy was the one who was kind of like, he, I think was the inmate that was used as an example uh, of what could happen to you. But there were others as well that that happened to us as well. So one of the other inmates, I think this is Michael, I always mess up how you say this name, Uriosta, Uriosta. Um, But he, um, and it was Mario, I'm sorry. So um, so Mario Uriosta uh, was gang raped by seven of the inmates who came into cell block four. Uh, they uh, dismembered him and they stuffed his genitals into his mouth and they also blowtorched him. And I can't remember if this is him. I may have this, the, the facts a little bit off here, but uh, they definitely stuffed a few of the inmates like genitals into their mouth. They strung up one of the inmates to a basketball court as an example to anybody else in the facility who was going to go against them. And they, they cut them, they dismembered them. There was one inmate that they had um, hung up uh, and by a, a rope off of the banister. And he uh, was de- almost decapitated as a result. So, I mean, these are absolutely horrific and just unfathomable like crimes against humanity that were happening in cell block four as a result of these inmates believing that uh, the other inmates were testifying or otherwise cooperating against them and making them stay in jail forever. So this is what happens psychologically when you have, uh, you know, death as a, a threat over your head and you think that the only way to vindicate that or, you know, you, you simply are so frustrated that you go against your fellow man who's also in the same facility as you, suffering the same conditions, and and this is what happens. It's it's just ungodly. It's horrific. And you know, I think, you know, we'll we'll probably get into this on a different episode with the like the Sanford project like we talked about. But I think that when you have these levels of hierarchy that are so, um, how do you say it, like truncated into a very small population, what you end up with is seeing like the absolute depravity of humanity. So after these inmates were tortured, dismembered, sexually assaulted in all of the worst ways, uh, the inmates who, like, they're not super, they're, they're smart. They're super smart. They're not super sophisticated and they don't have a real plan. They also set fire to different places surrounding this building. And so in doing that, they destroyed some very key records. Uh, They also destroyed the gymnasium where uh, the uh, one of the inmates was being strung up um, and set other fires across the buildings. But no guards were actually killed, like I said, and they were taken in as hostage kind of to try and get the conditions that they were they were seeking that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, still, these, 
I don't want it to be assumed that the guards got off easy. They were also sexually assaulted. They were also tortured horribly and not one of them ever returned to work. Wow. I wouldn't. No, definitely not. So anyway, yeah. So that's what's going on on the inside. What's going on on the outside, Pisha? So on the outside, we've got some loved ones of the inmates, the the government officials, the local law enforcement agencies, the media. We've got all these people starting to gather outside the fences. Because in the early parts of the riot, inmates broke into the room with all the payphones and began calling their loved ones and were like, yo, we rioted in. And so it was actually the loved ones who notified the Department of Corrections, the government and local law enforcement that there was a riot going on because the corrections officers were unable to alert management before that. So it wasn't until the loved ones started calling everybody that they even knew a riot was going on. However, they should have already known because there was a previous attempt by inmates to uh, take local reporters hostage during a scheduled interview and air their demands live on the air. It was supposed to be pretty peaceful. However, the corrections department got word of it and they thwarted it merely by rescheduling the interview to another date. So they avoided that one, but that previous attempt was only days before the actual riot. In fact, the night before the riot, an inmate informed correctional officers and higher management that inmates from cell block five currently being housed in dorm E2 were planning a riot in the exact way that it occurred the next day. They knew all along the way that this was going to happen and they did not stop it. So all of these people, the media, the government officials, including the Department of Correction, Mucky Mucks, law enforcement, and the loved ones of inmates began gathering outside the prison fences. They were able to hear the screams of the inmates being tortured. Like we mentioned before, they saw the one inmate's head explode. Um, I... I I mean, I, I know it's just, I, I kind of was laughing and like, I was, it was more of a shudder. I was just like, Ooh. yeah, no, like, oh, no, oh my totally. God. Like it's just, it's, you can't make this stuff up. It, it's, right. it's wild to me that this happened. And so the national guard also showed up and was like, hi, we're here to both aggravate the situation, do absolutely nothing of use at the same time. And they buzzed some inmates who were coming out to exchange a hostage spooked them and then the inmates ran back inside and continued beating and raping the said hostage oh my god yeah so good work national guard yeah seriously yeah so that's what's going on outside it's pretty chaotic out there there's some Mm -hmm. um there's some inmates who have been able to escape there was one dorm i think it was dorm e1 the one underneath dorm e2 that refused to participate in the riot and refused to cooperate with the riot leaders they in fact barricaded Mm -hmm. themselves within the dorm and eventually were able to escape through that back door that no one uses for some reason and they were being held in between the fences the two sets of fences separating the prison yard from the outside world. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. 
Yeah. So so people Oof. are escaping, some of them, not all of them, but slowly but surely it's getting pretty chaotic outside, but not nearly as violent as inside. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So, okay. Um, yeah. So, so the media is starting to show up, right? This is in the middle of the night, right? Like this is like one fifty-seven. I think we, we, we spoke about that time period earlier. That's when some of the, not the rioters actually, it was the ones who, who were able to get a hold of walkie talkies inside the facility and call out to some of the other staff members within the facility. And so around that time is when it really became known that this prison riot was happening. And so they're calling in all kinds of people at this point. It is two o'clock in the morning. Media is showing up. Some of the politicians are showing up. At least they're answering their phones. Um, you know, I thought about this in, in one regard and was like, well, I mean, I guess they had a responsibility to show up because blood is on their hands. Absolutely. But like, what if you accidentally slept through that night? Like I sleep pretty hard. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, I try to keep my phone on, uh, you know, in case of emergency, but man, it's lucky that they were on call and were, were able to get there. Um, still, I think that there is some delayed response and the negotiations started around two 30 in the morning um, where they were asking for Felix Rodriguez in particular, as well as Bruce King, the governor, and they had specific demands. And so it, it actually was a little bit chaotic in the beginning. Some, because they got a whole, a whole bunch of different groups of inmates got uh, different walkie talkies throughout the facility and were just kind of overlapping each other's messages. And so it didn't really get anywhere until some of the stronger voices bled through. And what is interesting is that one of those strong voices that came through was uh, someone named Duran. And that person was a part of this Duran decree that we're going to go into next time. And we don't have time for it this time around, but they were able, they were not the initiators of this riot, but they made demands because they saw kind of where they were. And this goes back to, again, a lot of this stuff is happening and there's so much violence and it's so chaotic and it's so awful, but it does go back to what these prisoners were actually trying to accomplish. And what they were trying to accomplish were 11 different demands that the prison was not giving to these inmates at the time that were basic human rights. And so they were using this opportunity to try and get to the people that they needed to, because again, they didn't have any other way of doing that. The grievances were going nowhere. I mean, you, you, you talk about, and I could go so political into this and I'm going to try not to, but the thing is that you have to create some kind of chaos in order to get what you want when you have a, a situation where you're not getting the human rights that you desperately need. And so like these prisoners, there's no excuse for the level of absolute atrocities that they are committing against their own inmates and not against the corrections officers. But at the same time, they were left no choice but to riot at this time. And so they used their platform that they were able to accomplish through this prison riot to try and gain these basic human rights through uh, given kind of, you know, spontaneously, 
but it ended up working out for them. So they had demanded um, in the beginning that Felix Rodriguez, who we've talked about, and Bruce King, who was the governor at the time, would come and negotiate with them. Didn't they were they, also... Oh, sorry. I Didn't no, they also want that douchebag deputy warden Robert Montoya because everyone freaking hated him and they wanted to like beat the shit out of him and kill him? And Absolutely. Stuff? Yeah. Oh, and God, he was actually, I hate that guy. Yeah. Well, and he was actually the first one to negotiate with them. And he oh, was wow. not... It did not go well for for him because he was not. <laughs> oh, it didn't. <laughs> Why Can you not? Believe it? No. Why not? Because... Is it because he got all these court orders before and he didn't even didn't even abide by those? It might have had something to do with that. I would think. <laughs> so this guy Montoya, he was one of the like kind of the more harsher draconian types of officers who was involved with uh the the prison early on and he you know came in thinking that he was a big hot shot it took him like oh i think like 35 37 minutes to even start engaging and so like that he's really not living up to like he's got this training and he thinks he's a big old badass and he's not um and the prisoners hate him and so he doesn't make it very far, but eventually like through different avenues. So like, there's all of these different things happening all at the same time. There's the media who's showing up and they're actually gaining access to the prisoners themselves. And there was actually, I'm trying to remember, it was a British one that actually got, went into the prison itself during the time of the prison riot that, the, that these negotiations are happening and are able to kind of in real time tell people what's going on inside the prison. They had no idea how bad it was. They did not know the level of violence that was going on inside the prison and they went in anyway. There was like one or two, I think it was a cameraman and a, a maybe a reporter or whatever um, that actually went in uh, during this time as well. So, you know, all of these things are happening and uh, at the same time, you know, there's the National Guard doing their thing and there's, you know, the negotiators on the outside and the negotiators on the inside who are not the same people, like I said, as the initiators, although some of them were, I think, uh, what was it? Chopper one was the one who initiated the uh, negotiations. And then eventually it came down to some of these other ones who made specific demands. And so one of the uh some of the demands that they were asking for obviously like you know are are pretty basic but but they actually are what was going on and what was wrong with the prison that led to this riot they were asking for actual food services physical facilities including clothing and personal hygiene items to be provided to inmates medical care basic right they um, didn't have this to begin with what the heck not actual real medical care. And that continues to be a problem today. So it's not like, you know, this happened and then everything got better. Like, spoiler alert, it still sucks in prison. So, <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. But um, but they they made these demands and certain ones, they, they conceded back and forth between the governor and some of the political people who are on the outside and the inmates who are on the inside to try and get some of the things that were being demanded through this uh, um, lawsuit that one of the inmates 
was a part of and was bringing other inmates in on. Uh, and they, like I said, they were very basic, like human rights type of situations. Um, they included also, you know, trying to make it so that there was no prosecution of the inmates who started the riot um, and due process for some of the grievances that the inmates uh, were raising against the, the jail itself. Um, they wanted correspondence between inmates and outsiders. So like loved ones and stuff like that. They wanted access to legal counsel and legal resources, including like a law library, which is again, a basic human right in prison and attorney client uh, visitations. So um, the, the thing, I, I think like one of the, the ending points that I want to conclude with in at least this episode is the fact that this riot could have lasted so much longer. It ended up lasting 36 hours, which is a really long time. I think that this riot was the most brutal one in America. Um, and I think, it, I don't think there's one that is more brutal even to this day. And, you know, we're going to talk about the Attica prison riot later, which was actually more fatal, but, but, but just... fatal for like a different reason. We'll talk about it then. It was not fatal for the same kind of mayhem and chaos between the inmates. Right. And I think that a lot of people who've written about this agree that this is the most severe that it, that has happened in America. So, um, so 1980, you know, New Mexico prison riot, it, uh, that's, that's kind of where it began to end was when the inmates kind of reached this breaking point where they needed medical care because many of them were overdosing and many of them needed medical care who were not involved with the killings and, and other things that were going on in the prison. Um, and, you know, some of the other things that were happening was that the, there were some of the COs whom the inmates had taken in and tried to protect. And like, that is the most, like, it's, it's very endearing and very sweet. They actually dress some of these COs up as inmates in order to protect them. So, um, so clearly it wasn't all of them. Clearly it was a very small few of them who turned drastically violent as you talked about the death squad. Um, and you know, the rest of the facility is left trying to defend itself and trying to reckon with kind of the wreckage that is happening throughout the rest of the prison. So, I mean, I can only imagine the, the ghosts that are, that are happening, you know, that inhabit this area and so eventually because these inmates needed the medical care that they were not getting they ultimately released hostage by hostage and eventually the situation got so dire on the inside that they had to kind of relent a little bit more to what was going on on the outside so some of the demands were met some of their requests through these negotiators on the inside were were met uh, and and agreed to by the governor and some of these other higher ups who were in charge of the prison and some of them were not and i think that's probably a good place for us to pick up next time because there's a whole lot of things that happened after this case i'm sure that you know there's going to be some questions about what happened to these inmates who were responsible for some pretty horrific 
crimes on the inside. And we're going to get into that. And hopefully, you know, no finger, you know, we're going to cross some fingers and toes hoping that this happens. But we're going to try and pull someone in who can tell us kind of the inside scoop on what was going on in the 1980s prison next time. Uh, if not, uh, we have a lot to talk about. And I'm It'll sure just that be we. Us. Just us again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so no promises. <laughs> no promises. But. But we're we're going to try and, and pull uh, in some some people who might be able to tell us a little bit more about the 1980s prison riot and what happened after afterwards. So, so yeah. So next time we're going to cover some of the things that happened after the fact and uh, some of the things that happened to the inmates who were involved, uh, as well as what happened with prisons and whether or not any of the politicians who were directly responsible for this happening ever suffered any consequences and i am willing to bet that the audience can probably guess whether or not that happened so yeah anyway um but that covers us for part two of the 1980 new mexico state penitentiary riot and again i think you know we've got Oh, there's so many facts involved with this case and we covered as much of them as we could, but it's probably one that we should probably do the update once we get that book and we, we read through it and can add some more facts to it. I can't but, wait to read that book. I can't wait. It's this is such a nice surprise. You send me books. Oh, you know, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so that, I think that covers us for, for part two. And we hope that you will tune in to part three and the final part of the 1980 New Mexico State Penitentiary riot. And we'll cover, you know, kind of a global, more global, we'll, we'll cover more prison riots and the reason why mass incarceration is such a huge topic as far as racial implications go in our final February episode. But for now... Remember to like, follow, and subscribe. That's my favorite yeah. to say. Sorry. For- <laughs> no, absolutely. No, you, you, you jump in there. And stay out of law school and the infirmaries. Bye-bye. <laughs> Remember to like and subscribe to Deranged DeJure on your favorite podcast platform. And follow at deranged.dejure on all the major social media. Contact us by email at deranged.dejure at gmail.com. This has been a Raven Kink production. <laughs>